0: Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things art related. This is episode number 96, Carol Knows How to Die, recorded on March 27th, 2020. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen
1: Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, hey, Julie. How are you? Well, it's a bright, sunny day, so I'm feeling Good. Although I have to say, with the coronavirus uh, keeping me at home, I'm gazing at my home with a more critical eye, I'm sure everybody is. Time for some renovations, is that what you're saying? Well, just you look at something and you say, how have I lived with that all these years? it's true
0: in fact somebody was saying uh that because i i i floated the idea that i thought there'd be a lot of babies who were uh conceived during this time period that everybody's home and somebody else i saw online had said that the only babies that will be born during this time period are o- either first children or only children because people who already have kids are not interested in having another one at home <laughs> Good thought. excellent thought there you go i thought that was hilarious Um, So some things of interest that are going around on around here, my free online class, the two week art journal is still available to you. Of course, I have a new online class, uh, which is another art journaling class. It's uh, the two week art journal working with a limited palette, uh, which is actually kind of a perfect uh, segue into a conversation with our guests today, because a limited palette is where you only work with a very small number of colors, understanding that you can mix what else you need instead of having to have, you know, 40 tubes of paint. Um, So our guest is Carol Soderlund and uh, Carol began dyeing fabric in 1988 when she couldn't find the color she needed to bring the vision of a quilt to life. And with her hand-dyed fabric, she was able to create the quilt, which subsequently won Best of Show at the 1989 International Quilt Festival in Houston, Texas. In case you don't know, that's like the Super Bowl of quilting. Um, And since then, dyeing and service design processes have become an enduring interest for her. So she has been an artist and educator for 30 years, and her curiosity about the range of color that you can derive from just red, yellow, and blue led to the creation of the color mixing system for dyers, which we are definitely going to talk about. She is a Former high school teacher, and she was nominated for Teacher of the Year in 2013 and again in 2015 by the International Association of Creative Arts Professionals. She is the co-author of Playful Fabric Printing with Melanie Testa, and I am delighted to have her on the show. Welcome, Carol.
2: Oh, thanks, Julie. It's it's really fun to be here. I've been a longtime listener of your show, and so I'm pretty excited.
0: So, Carol, let's, um, in case people don't know, I mean, the reason I titled the podcast Carol Knows How to Die uh, is obviously it's the (laughs) D.Y.E. Die. But because I think before I had ever met you, I knew that if you wanted to know anything about dying, you wanted to talk to Carol Soderlund. I mean, is that, would you say that your reputation precedes you across the country?
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah, especially in the area of um, Procyon MX dyes in particular, because those are the the dyes that I really specialize in, and uh, those are the fiber-reactive dyes that will dye um, any type of plant-based fiber, like cotton or hemp or linen, um, you know, all those types of fibers. It will dye silk also.
0: I was going to ask you a quick question about that. So recently on Project Runway... I don't know if you watch it at all, but then the recent season, okay, they, had a like. dying, they had a dyeing challenge. And one of the mm-hmm. things that happened to several of the designers is that they chose the wrong fabric to dye so their colors weren't as vibrant as they wanted. And what I found interesting about that, because the only dyes that I have worked with are either the Procyon Thickened dyes or with like Rit dye. Is I had never mm-hmm. experienced that idea that like cotton was somehow a bad fabric to dye.
2: Well, cotton's not a bad fabric to dye at all. I mean, you can you can dye cotton very very easily. Uh, sometimes cottons get treated with finishes like um, oh a permanent press finish on a cotton or a sizing or something like that. And that might happen to garments that you might buy already sewn up, or it might happen just to, it often does happen to fabric just from the fabric store, that they have these kinds of finishes. And sometimes those finishes can block the dyes from getting into the cotton fibers themselves. So um, when you're dyeing cotton with, you know, well, really with any kind of dye, but definitely including Procyon dyes, um, it's good to use dyes that are called PFD, and that means prepared for dyeing. And really what that means is that they haven't put any finishes on them. It's not what they've done to them. It's what they haven't done to them. And so you have pristine cotton without any coatings that could keep the dye from getting down there into the fibers, and really making their molecular bond right down there in the fibers.
0: I, I would just like to give people a tip that I learned the hard way, which is when you go to the fabric store and you buy a couple yards of PFD or prepared for dyeing fabric, um, and then you put it in your drawer you won't remember that it's PFD
2: <laughs> unless you're a super expert. I, yep,
0: I already yeah, knew you, you were good. to say. You won't be able to tell that. To so take it. a piece of, mm-hmm. yeah, take a piece of masking tape, take a piece of paper or something, and just make sure you know right. that that is PFD.
2: Oh, absolutely we we always think we're going to remember all these things but you know give for me give me a week and i won't remember it. <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> absolutely but then I'm going down a rabbit hole of project runway because this is not about that but have <laughs> i have been amazed at how many of the people on that show the contestants don't actually understand fabric and so they get messed up because they choose the wrong fabric which doesn't fall the way it's supposed they want it to or something i mean i just i feel like one of the issues with being a designer should be that you understand the fabric yeah
2: i i agree and i think but i think it's also a learning curve the younger they are the less time they've had in life to really encounter a lot of different fabrics and learn to sew with them so it's a you know and sometimes they have older contestants on there, and often those contestants are much more knowledgeable about basics and sewing techniques and things like that. True. Um, well, so, okay. Well, I was
0: also going to say, like, somewhat related to this, though, is one of the things when people always say, like, why should I pay for a class or pay for a video or pay for a book when there's so much free content on the Internet And part of the reason that I think that you should pay, besides the fact that we should support people who are, you know, putting this information out there and making a living at it, is that when you come to class, that's when you're being given the morsels of information about, hey, you know what, you've been trying it this way, you make this one little change, and it's a huge difference. That's where you get somebody who's looking at the way that you're doing it and saying, hey, I could really help you you know, work it out differently, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you've been a teacher for so many years, Carol. I'm sure you could extol all the benefits of why it's really important to come to class um, to get you just started on your journey.
2: Oh, it is. It's so helpful. I mean, I've had students who have come and said, oh, you saved me 20 years. You know, it just they're so excited. For one thing, they get to have all of this in one place without hopping from oh, this 15-minute video, which I got a nugget, but I'm not really sure she's got it right because that video said something else. And you start watching all the little YouTubes and and it can be very confusing because you can get a lot of conflicting advice and you don't really know how to sort that out and what's important and what isn't important to pay a lot of attention to in the beginning. So it's really nice to have somebody to guide you to, to distill things down to their essence so that you can you know, move forward in the simplest way possible. Because there are a lot of things that you can, you just do the very basic things, step one, two, three, you're gonna have beautiful dyed cloth. And then if you want to take it farther, you can take it farther. You can get more precise about what color you might want to end up with. But you don't have to do that in the beginning. In the beginning, you're just like, so thrilled. Oh, I've got cloth, and I've got water, and I've got dye and soda ash. And that's all I need to get beautiful color and just a little bit of time. And it's really so simple. So getting started and what to pay attention to is really your teacher is your guide to help you through all the all the details, which could be totally confusing if you if you paid attention to the, you know, the nitty gritty details that maybe an advanced dyer might care about. But in the beginning, there's really no need to even think about and uh, well, so that's what was gonna, that, you know, very helpful. I was going to
0: say, one of the things that I think is great about classes, too, is that they give you discipline. Because I'm thinking specifically about your classes, where a lot of times you're having people really um, do the kind of swatching that I think is important for people to do, whether they're painters or dyers or, you know, anything else. Um, but you don't always have the discipline to do at home, but somehow in a class you're able to do it. And then you go home with this wonderful reference library.
2: Oh, it is. It's, it's just a treasure to have this library of beautiful colors that you know you can make again. It's, it's really exciting. It's, uh, it's a really a, a reference tool. And it's also, um, I don't know, it's all stimulation. It's like, oh, I can do this. I can, you know, I remember the first time I put yellow, red, and blue together and in various ways with paint was way back before I even started dying. And, um, And it was just so, so exciting. I was in a class with Yvonne Porcella and she was teaching us to paint on fabric and it was at a conference in California and i just sat on the floorway in the hall because we didn't have enough tables so i was i was much younger then i was sitting on the floorway <laughs> splashing paint all over this muslin that i had and it was just the most thrilling thing i ever did i just loved color and putting it on cloth it was the best and you know from just knowing that, I knew I wanted to start dying. I didn't know how, but um, you know, eventually I found my way. And uh, well, let's you know, talk a, a little bit about.
0: At a time. A, a, let's talk a little bit about that journey and sort of how how you came to uh, to dying. Really, so start us off from the beginning. Were you a creative kid? Did you always know that you wanted to be an artist? Was it uh, something that came later for you?
2: Oh, I did. I did always want to do art. I didn't, you know, name artist as my eventual, oh, I want to be an artist. I just felt that I was, and I just, you know, used my box of crayons and I, you know, in fourth grade, I did a report on on gold miners in California for California history. And I I, I made a tapestry. It was, I took my color crayons out and I drew a miner panning for gold and it was about as wide as the piece of muslin I had. And it was about probably two or three feet tall. And I turned that in with my written report as my project. And I think that was my first tapestry that I ever made. Uh, fourth grade. Oh. So, do, you still, yeah,
1: do you still have
2: that? You know, that was, I, I don't understand why I didn't find it when I had to go through the house before we moved uh, moved west back from New York. And I didn't find it, but I found the report. So I don't know what happened to that tapestry, but I do have an embroidery that I did at age four. So that sewing started very early and continued on at the same time as as doing anything I could with colors or paints or any of that. And in high school though, um, I sort of got an academic bent and and sort of went in a more academic direction for college You know, the old how are you going to make a living as an artist thing came into play and all that sort of thing. So I I veered away from it for a long time, Um, although I had roommates that were art majors and I kept looking longingly at their paint and like wish I could get my hands on that. I do remember that. Uh, I had one uh, roommate who was doing really big canvases and flinging that acrylic paint and it it was very exciting to me. But I followed an academic direction and eventually became a a high school teacher. And I did that for quite a number of years. But all the while, at about the same time I started teaching full time, I also started uh, quilting. So I had sewn clothes for many years ever since, I don't know, since I was a kid and my mother sewed my clothes and eventually I took over and I made all my clothes in, in high school and some of them in college, although I didn't have as much time then and uh, so I, quilting seemed like a, a really um, logical thing to do and uh, it was it was really fun eventually I kept that up even though I had small children so my amount of time for quilting was less but I still loved getting to it whenever I had time and uh, I had this great idea for a quilt that I wanted to enter into a contest but I couldn't find the colors that I needed as you mentioned in, in my intro um, and I was very, very frustrated because we had in upstate New York, we had a few quilt shops. There was no, um, there was no internet then. Uh, so I had to drive to quilt shops to find uh, the colors I needed. And I needed, you know, all the colors with the rainbow, of course. And I needed many values of those colors because I wanted to create this sort of 3d look and, So I did lots and lots of shopping with the kids in tow. And I quickly learned that a two hour drive each way to a quilt shop um, was not a thrilling thing for my two young sons. And an ice cream cone was not enough of a bribe. (laughs) So (laughs) I, uh, you know, it, it was a long search for fabric. And in the end, I had this notebook with all these colors, little swatches of all the colors lined up that I managed to accumulate. And I, I needed grays desperately, because all I could find was green grays or pink grays or blue grays, yellow grays, you know, really weird grays, but none of them looked good together, and they didn't look like they all came, you know, as a part of a whole. And so I was super frustrated, and I said to my husband, um, I, I just can't make this quilt. And he he had liked my design quite a lot. And he's like, I think you really should make that quilt. That's really good design. And I was like, yeah, but I, I just can't get these grays. Nobody makes them. So you have to remember, this is back in the 1980s. And, um, it's, you know, even now we can't find the colors we need, but it was really bad back then. And uh, so he said, well, why don't you dye them? Because husbands are like that. They provide you a solution. And, you know, of course, I was very piqued that he provided that solution because it seemed so logical and why hadn't I thought of it? But what I said to him was because I don't know how to die. And so that was my final word on the subject, except, of course, I played over and over in my head until I remembered that I had read an article in American Quilter magazine written by Jan Myers. And Jan Myers Newberry, everybody you might know her by that name. She's a wonderful Shibori artist. And so she wrote an article for them on how to dye a gradation of colors. And I went and looked it up. It was two pages long, told me where to get the dyes. And I mail ordered them. My jar of black dye came. And 24 hours, I had a perfect gradation. 24 hours later, I could have, I could have dyed all the colors for that quilt in in a week's time. And subverted all that shopping with the kids in the car It would have been so great so that was um that was very encouraging and I did go on to make the quilt and as you know it it, it uh, was shown quite a bit and garnered garnered some good prizes and um yeah still loved it so that was that was super fun and of course it encouraged me to try it again and to dye more and I I just got that feeling back again of splashing the colors around and seeing what would happen and seeing what you could make. And, and so I was often running with dyeing and I was, you know, reading everything I could about it. And, uh, you know, trying to teach myself from the books that were just beginning to be available. Uh, thank goodness, because it really, I had some great books as a guide and, um, and just had super amount of fun with it. Uh, eventually, uh, kept on going. And I got this idea for creating uh, a catalog of samples for myself based on color theory. And, you know, the color theory of red, yellow and blue primary colors put together should make all the colors in the universe. And um, so I got, wow, I could I could do something like that. I could have this great sample book and just know how to make all these colors from just three. And it was a fantastic idea, but it did have a downside. It was going to be a lot of work. And so I actually left that idea on the shelf for quite a number of years until I had the idea in my head that I ought to sign up for a class from Nancy Crow. Ah, Julie
1: <laughs> one, too.
2: Yes, you might know what that engenders in you, Julie. Like, oh, now I'm going to have to go out and buy every color in the world. Did you have that feeling, Julie? Yes, I, I,
0: spent, I spent way more money than a human being should ever spend on fabric trying to <laughs> deal with the supply list. And I still have tons of that fabric. And yet, well, when I was I- there, I still didn't have the right colors.
2: Still didn't have enough, you know, and I had lots of friends who had taken classes from Nancy. So I knew what I was in for when I decided I should take the class from her. But since I was already a dyer, I decided, hey, you know what? This could be the time. This could be the time that I pull out that idea of learning how to mix every color. And I had this great idea for, you know, a system of how to do it to speed it all up and try out that system and the fabric that I could dye, that I then dyed would be the basis of what I bring to class. And so I signed up for class a year in advance and I signed up for two weeks. And um, so I was committed and I commenced to figure out the system that i had the idea for and so i had all my dying books around me and notebooks and, and calculators and all kinds of stuff just to try to figure it out and eventually i started dying i started dying three weeks before i was supposed to go to class and so my, my i i made myself a schedule and i created all these, colors that I it took me you know a year of planning and three weeks of dying to get it done and um I showed up in class with 343 yards of hand dyed fabric Ah,
1: in many
2: colors and values and um you know light to dark and all the way around the spectrum and you know grayed colors and bright colors and all, all of it yeah so That was, that was pretty exciting. And it was really fun to use my fabric. And the fun, the funny thing was when I got home from that first two weeks, I was so curious because I had totally used up some of the colors and other colors, of course with 343 yards in only two weeks, I mean, I knew I was going to bring a lot back with me, of course. Um, but I also knew I would use it again because it was hand-dyed fabric. And I loved hand-dyed fabric. So I could do anything with it. I could print on top of it or I could use it as solids or I could keep on going with it. And so I wasn't worried about having a lot of fabric left at the end. That didn't bother me at all. And uh, But I was curious, how much did I actually end up using Oh, in those first two weeks. Um, and I, so I can be a little obsessive once in a while, I guess. Oh,
1: God, because you measured it.
2: I- I did well, you know, not to the inch, but I went and I opened up and just sort of saw which which pieces I used, and I kind of just took an estimate of how much I had left off of those pieces, and uh, and and I actually assessed how much I used out of three hundred forty three fabrics, and it was probably around twenty yards <laughs> that I used not counting black and white of course you have to you have a lot of black and white fabric but not counting that uh, of my hand dyed fabrics i had probably used about 20 yards so
0: i want to so. ask you about like six different things so let's let's start yeah. first okay, let's, with, it. let's first start with so is that when you actually met nancy crow because i know you teach at the crow barn every year twice a year yeah
2: um, well, it was twice a year for a lot of years. Um, right now, it's um, been two weeks once a year, two weeks at a time once a year. Um, and in the last few years, that's pretty much been my schedule there. But yes, it, it was um, that class I signed up for uh, for Nancy was the first time I really got to know her. Uh, she led a conference for quite a few years uh, called Quilt Service Design Symposium, in um, Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio. And that, by the way, is still going on. It's a great conference. Um, it's now led by Tracy Rieger. Um, but Nancy was in charge of it with, uh, um, with Linda Fowler back in those days. And so I had gone to her conference and I had you know, met her in passing and seen her speak and stuff. But I hadn't, when I took a class from her was the first time I really, uh, really met her. And did she and, fall uh,
0: in love with your hand dyed fabrics during class, and immediately <laughs> say you have to come and teach people how to do this?
2: Well, there there was the first day, and then there was the last day of the two weeks. The first day, and and you're going to laugh, Julie, because I think you'll recognize the this. And she she looked at my fabric, which was which was I had them in in made bins upended behind my table all along the wall and they were seven rubber band bins and they were, you know, slipped in like flat file folders and in color order and value order and everything. And um, so she looked at the fabric I brought for class and and, uh, she said, well with all that fabric you better do something great this week oh <laughs> nothing like that's, putting the pressure on you know that's so nancy crow right there yes it is it's very nancy she's always gonna gonna up the ante and make you jump as high as you can and um so anyway we, we go through the class two weeks it's just a challenge just you know it's, you know how it is you go through all, all these arcs and all these exercises. And by the end of the week, I was, um, well, you know, I it was at a different conference. It was not on the side of the Crow Barn because she didn't have the barn yet. She hadn't built that teaching facility that she has now in Ohio. And um, so it was at a conference. And we were not sent to bed when it was like 10 p.m. So we would stay up till 1 a.m. sewing and then we'd get up and come in early and be in the classroom again by 7 a.m. And by the end of two weeks of this, we were so exhausted that, I mean, I could hardly see straight. So I was sort of staring at my wall for my final project, trying to figure out what on earth I was going to do with that thing that just looked like a mess to me. And um and as I was staring at it, she, she said, Carol Sutherland, why don't you come up here and show me that book? You've been showing everybody else, but you haven't shown me. And because I had the basis of my sample book that everyone makes when they're in my Color Mixing for dyers class, a sample book that, um, well, what they make in class now has over a thousand samples, but my um, original sample book had the, three hundred forty three samples of the pieces that I brought to that class. So it was a smaller version. But um,
0: I'm sorry, students leave your class with a book that has a
2: thousand samples. More than a thousand samples. Yes. that's insane. It, it, I know. Well, that's because my my system works really well. It does speed it up a lot. yes. It's it's pretty it's pretty fun because we use teamwork um, and we work together and we dye a bigger piece of fabric and then we cut it all up and share the samples and there's a whole system for doing it so it's not like you're mixing individual little cups of um, there's there's a bigger system and uh, so another reason to go to class because
0: you could never do it at home
2: oh I have students who have done it at home you you totally learn how. Most of us would really rather do it in cloth because it's just a lot easier than when you do it at home. When you have, you know, 15 or 20 hands working on it and, you know, over the course of five days producing all these samples, you know, well, it's gonna take you 15 or 20 times as long at home. You know, and I have students who are willing to do it at home, but but most of us really like to come to class and do it because it's so much more efficient. This confirms
1: yeah. something for me, which is that quilters tend to be very uh, driven, focused, and meticulous. Well,
2: yeah, some do. I mean, we also like to work together. That's another thing. Yes. Quilters, You know, we work a lot by ourselves, but when we come together, we really enjoy it. So that's another aspect of it. Um, I think that's you know, true of so
0: many makers. Is that part of the pleasure of so. it is the
2: community? I agree with you. I agree with you. Yes, the community coming together and being with like minds, other people who love color, other people who love to sew. It it's wonderful, and I say love to sew, but I also have um, I also have people who are yarn dyers. And uh, costumers customers and garment makers, not only quilters in my classes. So I have a lot of a lot of uh, variety of fiber artists in my classes. Because I was which gonna say the cool. rules of
0: dyeing obviously apply across many different
2: disciplines. Yes, and it's very informative too for paint, even though it doesn't translate as directly to paint. Just like when you learn how to mix color and paint, it can translate to your dyeing, but you still do have to learn the technical aspects. And you kind of have to learn, you know, which kind of dye colors are similar to the kind of paint colors that you like to use. There are other things that are different about dye. For example, all dyes are transparent. Whereas I some say, so paint, that makes
0: yeah. uh, tint toning and shading very difficult, I would assume. Different.
2: Well, just different. Uh, not necessarily difficult, but different. Because you can't cover over what's been down there before. If you start on a piece that already has color on it, you're going to always have to take that into account because everything you layer on, unless you switch to paint on top, which is possible, but if you're if you're sticking with dye, everything you layer on will continue to be transparent. And that can be a limitation, but it can also be really a wonderful opportunity uh, to in mark making and in printing and and even in merchandise too. That. It I can, think that it can limitations. Lead to really exciting
0: looks. I do agree that I think that limitations create opportunities, and that it's one of the oh, important I things agree. about being an artist is to sort of view the limitations Thank that way as an exciting thing.
2: Oh, I totally agree. And, and you know, you had mentioned before using a limited palette, and that you're doing that in one of your newest classes. I i am such a believer in using a limited palette it's it just opens up our it opens up opportunities like you said in in a huge way and one of the things that i find with dyes is when you mix from a limited group of primaries the colors that you produce from that limited group look so beautiful together they they just don't clash they don't fight they can if you make neutral neutralized colors or what some people call mud colors, but they can be totally subtle and beautiful, they're going to harmonize with your bright colors, and everything is just going to look like it belongs together. And uh, that's one of the the real pleasures of having hand dyed fabrics, as opposed to you know you've brought all your purchased fabrics that you bought you know whatever you could from Kona and you bought some from Michael Miller and you bought these for that were from who knows where at your uh, local cool shop and, and just trying to make them all work together. And sometimes that can be a struggle because they just aren't behaving themselves. And let's, uh, let's talk uh, about hand, hand dyed fabric
0: different. for just a moment for people who are maybe sure. outside of the fabric world or who are not as deep into it. You know, hand dyes are obviously more expensive if you buy them as opposed oh, to I'm from them from a hand
2: buyer. Yes. yes.
0: Um, and also, not more
2: expensive if you do make them yourself, though, because you can buy less expensive fabric. A PFD fabric might run about five dollars a yard, and if you start buying it by the bolt, it can even be less than that. So that's a um, lot less than buying a, a, you know, a commercially dyed fabric.
0: One hundred percent. But hand-dyed fabrics also look different, I think, mm-hmm. than commercial fabrics.
2: They can, and, and they have, you know, it, there's just so many ways to dye them that there are many, many looks that you can get. Uh, but if if you're making, let's try, you know, imagine comparing a hand-dyed solid to a commercially-dyed solid. And I think there's just always, even even if you just really work it, or even if you dye it in a machine yourself, There's always this subtle layered, uh, shimmery aspect to a hand dye that doesn't exist in that commercially dyed solid uh, or rarely exists in the commercially dyed solid. That uh, it's just, you know, it's really hard just talking in an audio podcast to show people what that is. But but when you're a fabric, you just, you just, love your fabric, you know, you you really appreciate that. Or any type well, of I think, fiber artist, I yarns, agree, and threads, I think it, you name it. It
0: reminds me a little bit of like, for instance, you know, I suppose somebody like Matisse with his collage pieces made out of paper could have just used colored paper, but he painted his paper to be various yes. colors. And so yes. although the paint is a single color, like he painted a piece of paper blue, right, and then cut it up, there are subtle variations in the blue because that's a brush and that's paint and
2: that's a person's hand. And it's the mark of his hand and the dyers all have that mark of the hand. And you can increase the mark of the hand or you can decrease it depending on what the kind of look that you want. But I love that mark of the hand in hand dyeing. And uh, everybody's scrunch kind of looks a little different because nobody is no two people are going to scrunch in exactly the same way. And this is the same thing really
0: that nice. I always say about holding a paintbrush, which is no two people hold the paintbrush the same way. So whatever marks you make, even if we're both making the same marks, they'll look different because we're two different people.
2: Oh, very true. And you know, you can thicken dyes up and and make them behave somewhat like paints. So we can be talking about the mark of the brush as it has to do with dyes, also. And uh, yes, the mark of the brush or the, uh, the stroke mark making is so fun with thickened dyes. I, and, and one of the reasons it's fun is that transparency and that buildup. I love that aspect of it, too. And I'm also fun to kind of I don't know if you've done this at all, Julie, to combine um, fabric that you've painted with with fabric paints with dyes and you can over dye things that you painted as long as you haven't totally covered the surface you've left some openings for the dyes to go in Uh, or you can dye first and then paint after and it's it's a very interesting combination to do those kinds of things Um, so this is actually an excellent segue into
0: another question i have for you carol um, okay which is so I I have worked with uh thickened dyes. I took a class from Pat Polly mm-hmm. over at uh, Oh, cool. yes.
2: a good I call it?
0: Uh, in yeah. uh, you know what I'm talking about. You teach there all the time pro ProCamp, Thank you. Out in Fall River, Mass. Right. And that was super fun, and I made a ton of yardage, which I have, and I've been working my way through and et cetera, et cetera. But I have – and I even bought some, you know, dye and some thickening paste and the whole thing, but I really haven't Uh dragged it out because I've been a little bit intimidated about doing it at home. So Uh I figured let's – this is – you're the perfect person to talk to, which is I'm sure many of your students have many different kinds of setups for making dyeing work at home.
2: Yes, yes. Yes, and, and there's as many setups as there are students, really. But um, one of the things um, that um, I'm pretty passionate about, as you know, I wrote a book about thick and dye, along with Melanie Testa, and it's called Playful Fabric Printing. And we wanted to make that book very friendly to people that didn't have a lot of studio space in their home that they could devote to dyeing. And people are nervous about doing it in their kitchen because, of course, you don't want to combine dyes and food. It's just not a good plan. And so, well, what do I do if I'm not going to use my kitchen? And um, Melanie has a small apartment in New York City. Um, New York City apartments come that way. They just come small for the most part. And so she doesn't have a large space for dyeing, about the size of, of a um, card table, I would say. She actually uses a a um, workbench that's meant for, um, you know, workshops like a craftsman uh, workbench as her entire surface. Now, it is nice to have more space if you have it available. So, you know, it's great if you have a garage or a porch or something uh, to set up for dying. But You don't have to have a large space. You can actually do quite a lot with a small space. Um, So what are you particularly interested in, in terms of your questions about setting up a space to do something in?
0: Well, I guess I am just intimidated about doing it at home because it feels like you just, uh, you need like, you know, tons and tons of, of space. But I'm thinking a little bit about, Some of the things about like, I'm sure, you know, in class, obviously when we did it, you had a huge table and there was a huge table full of dies but like you really don't need that kind of level of space. I'm sure you can do it with less. You don't have
2: to. You're going to be able to do it with less because if you think more of, um, you know, just an ordinary size table, maybe it's a dining table or maybe it's even smaller than a dining table. Well, scale your fabric down you're used to working with a piece of paper you could go down as small as a piece of paper and just do piece after piece after piece if you only had a small table and of course then we know how to sew so we can sew those pieces back together and make something out of them so you don't have to only die on large yardage of course that's super fun but it the larger uh, the piece that you have to handle you know the more complex um it can get so uh when i was writing the book with Melly, i had room for large yardage i would always been used to dying and printing um say yard size pieces at least but Melly said we're gonna we're gonna orient this book to people that don't have that kind of space let's just uh, dye or print Small pieces to show in the book, and so we did the entire book. Everything that we show, we we made with pieces that were a fat quarter or smaller, and many of the pieces were um, like the size of a piece of paper that we used. And it's so I learned how fun it is to to dye and to print small pieces, even you know mark making techniques, screening techniques. Uh, block printing techniques, eraser carving techniques, um, you know, speedy cut and all those good things that I know you love to do. All of those are possible with thickened dye and you don't have to have big yardage to have a ton of fun and make very useful things that you can actually, you know, make into into a quilt or into a garment, whatever you'd like to make from it.
0: Let's talk about writing a book with someone else. So how did, so how did that sort of, how did the idea come up for you guys to write it together? And what was that, that process like?
2: Um, The idea came from Mellie and she's, uh, she was a student of mine. She'd taken a number of classes from me and gone on to use uh, the information that she got from class for a number of years. And at one point she got back in touch with me because Um, she'd been using thickened dye for a while and something had started to go off for her she just wasn't getting the vibrant colors that she was used to getting and she didn't know where her process had gotten derailed so we did some work together and I had her test out some things and I kind of got her back on track she just got derailed you know off a a little uh, you know she hadn't been batching her her uh, work quite the way she should have been and so forth. So we solved her problem pretty easily. But um, then fast forward about another year and she came back and said to me, you know what, I have this idea for a book I really wanna write. And she had previously published um, some books on her own, but she said this book, I really want to present dye and color the way you present it, Carol, because it's been so useful to me. And so would you be interested in doing part of the book? And I said, well, what is the rest of the book gonna be about? And she said, oh, it's gonna be about printing with thickened dyes and, you know, stamp carving and therm screen printing and mono printing more. um Also we're gonna include like, we would include like uh, making a repeat print because I love to do that, Melly says, and she she does. She really loves to do that and so um i said you know i do all those things too and i love them too so why don't we just write the whole book together and famous less words right so um we we got together a proposal we sent it in at uh to f and w um, and they accepted it and we started writing and we had a pretty close deadline and i was you asked about what was it like to write a book with another person at one point we said we were writing our book via FaceTime because mm-hmm. we all the time we were in our studios making making work for the book and making art with all the techniques and and refining the techniques we would be on FaceTime showing each other oh look what I did oh look at this and I'd say oh Melly look at my brayer I I'm just having trouble getting this dye to go out smoothly and then she'd say oh wait now what you know we actually ended up discovering that my brewer was warped and that's why i was so frustrated with it but you know we had we had there was another person there to talk over that problem with so it was kind of fun to uh, i'd say that was the most fun part of about writing our book together is all of the studio work that we did and sharing it back and forth as we were doing it and creating our designs for the fabric and then making our tools and then making the work super fun part of it Then eventually we had to get down to writing all the words and that was definitely a lot harder and we divided up the book. And so that, you know, she'd write certain chapters, I'd write certain chapters, but then we would comment and revise together. And, uh, and so we worked very hard on that part. And uh, then (laughs) F and W kind of, as you know, kind of hit the skids somewhat and, things started to go awry, and so eventually they dropped a lot of their authors, and they dropped us right before the um, last deadline of our book, and so we were kind of on hiatus, and of course very bummed out by that for quite some time, until um, with her superwoman cape on, in comes Pokey Bolton, and she had been the original founder of interweave as as many of your listeners will know and had founded quilting arts magazine and eventually sold that to FW and uh gone to work elsewhere well she came around and she was starting a new company called um craft crafting a life is the name of her company and it's the company that puts on craft napa every year and so Pokey said, I heard you and and Carol, she said to Melanie, I heard you and Carol were writing a book. And, um, and I also heard that um, F&W dropped you two, you know, pretty much after the book was ready. And we, you know, we said, yeah, and we're, we're kind of sad about that. She said, well, do you think I could take a look at your, your, you know, proposal or your outline or what you're doing and you know long story short um pokey said let me publish your book and we said hooray (laughs) Uh, melanie had already worked with pokey in the past for her previous book and so um, pokey was our publisher and um and editor and she also had a book designer that she had uh worked with previously in in interweave press and uh and had her design our book And so we we came out With a, a book from uh, Pokey Bolton, Crafting a Life it was really, really great To work with Pokey She knows That's a lot a nice about story. business Happy ending
1: yeah.
0: I hope you got ending. to I hope you ca- kept your advance from F&W
2: <laughs> Well we captured We captured one advance And the other one The book was cancelled right before we were going to get The second part, you know how it's all measured out when you deliver this then you you know oh you know it's it, it book no one goes into book writing um non books about dying to make a whole lot of money that isn't that isn't the point about it you know it is 100 percent true not love.
0: not a money maker
2: not that not about making money it's about sharing everything that you love and hoping other people can discover what they need to know and that will It'll inspire people. And uh, well, and that was actually, our outlook from the beginning.
0: This seems like a good place to segue into recommendations. So, ah. uh, Carol, what is your recommendation besides your book, okay. Playful Fabric Printing, which I have, I own, and I've read and is a very good book?
2: Thank you. Thank you. Um, can you still hear me? My, my earbud just fell out. You yes. Yes. Okay. Well, if you can still hear me, I won't worry about it. Then my other one's in. Um, Well, just a little aside, the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of embroidery. And I do embroidery on hand-dyed fabric and using hand-dyed threads and commercial threads. And uh, so that's been a big interest for me for the last couple of years. And so my, um, my recommendation is a fantastic book that I have found on the subject of embroidery and it's it's um let me see what the date is it's fairly new and i just i just got it yeah it's copyright 2019 and i i got it in the middle of last year so probably fairly soon after it came out it's called the Intentional thread and the author is susan brandeis and it is a unique book. I don't think I've seen another book like it in the area of embroidery. It is not a book about patterns or designs for embroidery. It's, uh, it's really, it's a hefty book. And it, it's about stitching as mark making. And so it really appeals to the printer and the mark maker in me. Um, it talks about handwriting as drawing and large-scale gestures in embroidery, contours, shapes, and spaces. Optical mixing of colors when you know using threads. Um, all the these different uh, aspects of mark making with threads and expressing yourself with threads has wonderful examples. Lots and lots and lots of pictures. Fantastic examples, but not it doesn't have projects for you to do. So it would be a book that you want if you if you want to take your stitching and just, you know, do your own expression. So I, I think your listeners might really like it because, you know, you're all about doing your own expression, making your own mark. So I, I really love this book. And um, it's, it, as soon as I open a page, I'm just inspired to just grab a needle and go it's very and it really translates over to printing I think as well so So that that would be my recommendation yeah
1: yeah mom what have you got okay so there's a I've been reading a ton of really depressing uh blog posts and so on online and I thought instead of going down that route I'd send out something that just made me smile i think a lot of people who are creative and who are worth you used to working with an audience have found that through the internet they're reaching out to people so you'll see for example musicians doing little live concerts and things like that but this is an article which i sent to you today It's called What It's Like to Self-Quarantine with a Michelin-Starred Chef. So it gives you that same feeling that you get from watching those little video things that people are putting out. You sort of see behind the scenes somebody's private life who does something very creative in public. And so uh, it is part of a blog that New York Magazine puts out about food called GrubStreet.com, but I thought people might like to know what it's like at home with a Michelin-starred chef. So I sent you the link, and I think people will enjoy it. I read that article today,
0: and the answer in shorthand, by the way, is
2: delicious. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it is sort of so, fun to have more time to cook. <laughs>
0: exactly. Well, I mean, I think what some of the article says, and it's a really good read, it's written really well, is that like normally being married to a chef, you you know, he never cooks because that would be like working, you know, but because he's home, oh, he's cooking. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, so my pick is something that I've been playing with for the last few days, uh, and I absolutely love, which is Heat and Bond, uh, iron-on vinyl, which doesn't sound very sexy, but essentially what I've been using it for, so basically this is, it's a clear vinyl, and with an iron, uh, it basically will stick, you know, basically melts the sort of adhesive or whatever is on it and makes it stick to things, and basically I have been ironing it onto paper, And then being able to create uh, pouches and bags and stuff like that, uh, which now you can make out of the paper because the vinyl is sandwiching it in between, essentially making it into a durable uh, fabric is a loose word, which I will use. But it's, it's actually... I'm having tons of fun with it. So, that's a product that's really fun, and you don't need to have any skill to be able to just iron it onto uh, paper to make it sewable and stuff like that. So, that's my pick. Um, so, Mom, we have hardly let you speak during this podcast. I didn't know before we wrap up if you have anything you wanted to add or any questions you wanted to ask.
1: No, I'm, uh, but I think you should link on the blog post that this is on. To your crowbarn uh, experiences, because people may be interested to know it was kind of like a boot camp.
0: I will. It's <laughs> a perfect way of describing it. I will. Mm-hmm. I will definitely
2: do that. Um, yeah. And, so, and yeah. Uh, you could give my link to. I do um, show my stitching that I mentioned. Um, I okay. have uh, two Instagram accounts. One for. Um, just about everything and then I have a separate one where I just show close-up shots of what I'm stitching and um so I'll I'll give you the links to include for that it's stitch Soderlund and and uh, it's just fun to I don't I don't actually have any patterns I just I stitch all improvisationally so um you know, whatever, whatever I feel like on top of my dyed surface. So I'll send you the link for that, Julie.
0: Perfect.
2: You can put that up.
0: Um, And that feels like the perfect time to say um, that you can find me at juliebalzer.com or on Instagram as Balzer Designs. And we would love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a comment. And if you'd like to help the show, you can leave a review on um, Apple Podcasts or you can mention us on Facebook or Instagram. That helps other people find the show. So thanks so much for listening and for subscribing. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast.